Hold on to your butts. Hello and welcome to episode 69 of the Reviewed Movie Podcast. I am Ivan Kander, and as always, I am joined by my two handsome debonair co-hosts, Dave Glanz and Mike Morandi. Say hello, gentlemen. Hello, hello gentlemen. Gentlemen. Oh, that was... It was really anticlimactic. I have a water bottle today. It's a plastic water bottle. We're clinking. It really makes glass <laughs> clinking Terrible. very anticlimactic. And this is the podcast, guys, where we talk about classic movies in a modern cinematic context. If you want to reach us on the web, you can do so at facebook.com slash reviewed podcast. You can email us at contact at reviewedpodcast.com. And uh, our website is reviewedpodcast.com. Go figure. Um, And on today's episode, uh, we are in uh, October, the month of Halloween, the month of scary movies. We are starting our Stephen King marathon. Ooh. Marathon. Very short marathon. We are going to be talking about the 1990 film, Misery. You almost died. You have a compound fracture of the tibia in both legs, and the fibula in the right leg is fractured, too. And as soon as the road's open, I'll take you to a hospital. In the meantime, you've got a lot of recovering to do. There is nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I'm your number one fan. My name is Annie Wilkes. I think one of my clients, Paul Sheldon, might be in some kind of trouble. You mean Paul Sheldon, the writer? Well, everybody sure likes those misery books. They had it at the store, Paul. They said he checked out last Tuesday. Isn't that a little strange? I guess it was kind of a miracle you finding me. In a way, I was following you. You were following me? Oh, Paul, I've read everything of yours, but the misery novels. You must be a good man. You could never have created such a wondrous, loving creature as Misery Chastain. Very kind. The presumption must now be that Paul Sheldon is dead. You dirty bird. How could you? Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Misery spirit is still alive. I don't want her spirit! I want her! And you murdered her! You don't think he's dead, do you? And don't even think about anybody coming for you, because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. So Misery came out in 1990, as I said. It was directed by Rob Reiner. It's based on a novel by Stephen King, and the uh, screenplay was written by William Goldman, and William Goldman's one of those iconic, famous screenwriters, uh... Probably one of the most famous screenwriters ever, actually. Probably most famous for writing Butch Cassidy in The Sundance Kid, I think. I was going to say The Princess Bride. Or The Princess Bride, yeah. uh, Mm -hmm. But he also wrote two very famous books on screenwriting that are uh, very popular. One is Which Lie Did I Tell? And uh, the other one is Adventures in the Screen Trade. So Mm -hmm. he uh, he, um, is a very uh, prolific... A personality when uh, you know screenwriters aren't often known people very very often there's like five that are really well known and he's one of them mm-hmm. um so yeah this movie um is interesting because it is one of the few movies uh that is based on a work of stephen king that is actually considered to be good there's like a handful of uh there's been tons of movies based on stephen king things but not a lot of them just are bad um and misery is one of the uh rare suspense horror adaptations that is pretty well regarded um, it stars James Kahn and Kathy Bates, and I'm going to read the plot synopsis from IMDb. After a famous author is rescued from a car crash by a fan of his novels, he comes to realize that the care he is receiving is only the beginning of a nightmare of captivity and abuse. Whoa. 
So uh, <laughs> that is the basic plot synopsis. This is Dave's choice. Yes. And um, yeah, so here's my question to you, Dave. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. You've had all <clears throat> horror movies slash suspense movies I gave you. I said, we're doing, it's October. I want to do something scary or scary-ish around Halloween. You had tons of movies to choose from. Um, you chose Misery. Yeah, I don't know. Why? Why? Why, why, Good is, question. This, why is this movie <laughs> worthy of a review to you? Why do you think it is worth talking about? Well, I think it's worth talking about because it, personally, it's just one of my favorite uh, horror movies. So <laughs> that's, you know, we, we recently did Aliens, which is another one of my favorite ones. And uh, if, if you want to call it a horror movie, um, it's just, it, it, you know, it's one of those movies I have very fond memories of, uh, even though it's a very, you know, overall disturbing movie. Um, but for whatever reason, it's just this. It's a. It's the one of the few horror movies that I I always come back to when I'm when I actually want to rewatch a horror movie. Misery is one of those movies that I'm like, oh, this was actually actually good. So I was I had that on in my head when I was watching this movie. Why is this something I like to revisit? And I think the answer is is that this is about as close to uh, sitting by a fire reading a scary story next to a snowstorm. Just you know, basically what's happening in the movie itself. There's something very uh, inviting about the the horror in this movie, something very cozy. It's like a it's like a cozy horror movie, and at the same time, there's a lot of humor in this movie that I think, uh, and not over the top humor, but very um, you know uh, smartly written, which makes sense, being that it's written by William Goldman. Uh, smartly written humor, and uh, you know they find I feel like they found just the right balance of humor and uh, you know uh, you know the thriller aspects. Uh, Hitchcockian suspense, you know, it, it juggles all these different things, but I think horror kind of stands out, you know, the most. Um, you know, there's nothing really supernatural in this movie, but, uh, you know, I really, uh, you know, I always really understood the characters, even, uh, you know, Kathy Bates's uh, Annie Wilkes. I really, you know, she really made her character as relatable, I think, as you could make. Um, anyway, a long, long rambling answer, like I, as I, always <laughs> I always ramble when you ask that question um, but uh, it's just one of my favorite overall uh, horror movies so it, it was you know it was an easy choice to make when we were thinking about Halloween so Mike um, I can't remember we've talked about a few scary movies we talked about The Exorcist on this podcast um, when you watch a horror movie um, like do you like the genre and if even if you don't love the genre is there a particular one you gravitate towards and where does misery fall on that list for you um, I, I generally don't like horror I think it's it tends to be really um, it's just not my thing I think it, it tends to really dwell a lot on um, just things of a disturbing nature that I just don't prefer spending my time thinking about a lot of this means body horror stuff like any kind of like I, I don't like um gore violence uh, that kind of stuff so it's just very rarely do i find a movie that uh, in the horror genre that i i like um uh however i i tend to like thrillers more and i think this movie kind of falls in the area that i actually i feel like i ca- i would categorize this more as a thriller than as a horror i think you know i, I feel like no, it's, I agree it's, with you might be right yeah, yeah. um and, and i but i really liked it i think like psychological thrillers and thrillers in general i i tend to like um and I, I think this is phenomenal. I think the because acting, you're a psychopath. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I mean, I never has a movie like related to me so much. Like, I, I've been kidnapping people probably I want to say <laughs> eight eight years or so now. And uh, shut I, up I, down there. <laughs> shut up. 
<laughs> I'm recording a podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> so uh, no, I, I think it's great. I think I think Kathy Bates and, and James Caan are, are phenomenal. I think they they both just fantastic. And I, I think you know what they did. When you think about the movie, right? It's really got a handful of sets. Um, it's and it's mostly in his room. I mean, there's some obviously some shots where he, they leave his room, but they do a lot of like you know the twelve Angry Men kind of thing where it's all for the most part done on one set, um, and it's still compelling. It's still tense. I mean, there, I I can't tell you the last time I've been this nervous watching a movie. Like God, when he leaves the room, um, and he goes oh, into yeah. the kitchen when she leaves to get the, the paper, and he's like kind of cruising around the house in his wheelchair. I'm like, oh my God, that is so tense. <laughs> um, and I, Boy, I'm so I'm, glad this was the first time that you saw it. And it oh yeah, it was, it was and a new I, experience. I, I knew enough what was going to happen. Like I've seen the hobbling scene. I've seen a couple of things. Um, I think it's hard not to. It's so kind of um, uh, distributed in pop culture that it's hard to not know certain things about the movie. But there's still a, a, a delightful amount of surprises um, that I hadn't known. I thought that was was really good. And I, I think God, some of the stuff like the makeup on his legs was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, oh God, and I honestly I think they showed that, just enough. They showed just enough of his legs to make you cringe yeah like when he crawls out of the bed and they're all purple and fat like oh yeah my God. like he didn't i don't know if it was real or not but it was effective for me like it was really yeah. effective and i think um that actually plays a big role in i think my my anxiety and tension in the movie because i know that he has these horrible legs that need to heal so it's like don't do anything risky those things gotta heal up man like don't piss her off she's gonna touch your legs and i don't want to see her touch your legs because they're freaking <laughs> disgusting so like, i think um I think that the makeup, special effects, however you want to categorize that, just phenomenal on that. And I think just overall in general, like how they made him look sickly and believably injured. And um, yeah, just overall, I think I, mostly, I think the two of them, I think Kathy Bates and James Conner, the reason why the movie works so well. I think mean, they're both phenomenal. They're subtle um, when they have to be subtle. They are scary when they have to be scary. And I think, uh, yeah, just great overall. Um. Yeah, so... <laughs> I've been stunned. The, um, He's like, what? what? That you actually enjoyed a movie? Yeah, I'm actually right. stunned that you enjoyed a movie. Um, it, it is kind <laughs> of amazing to me. So um, I have never seen Misery prior to this podcast. And um, the thing that kind of sucks, this is like the problem with movies, is like I felt, I really wish I could have not known as much as I know about this movie because it's so prevalent in pop culture, especially that hobbling scene. Have, have you I seen it before? Like whole, you had not seen it before. I have not seen the movie before. I've seen oh. the hobbling scene, but okay. I've never actually seen the movie from start to finish. I think that the big issue, and I also know that Kathy Bates is very famous. This is a very famous role in her career. They always show clips of it and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, star making. She won an Academy Award. Uh, I believe it's one of the best actress. I think it's the only. Uh, did The Shining win Academy Awards? No. I think this is the only Stephen King movie. Uh, something based on a Stephen King movie to ever win an Academy Award, which is yeah. kind of fascinating. Yeah. Um, Shawshank didn't get anything. No, it was nominated, nominated but, for but best didn't, picture. didn't get anything. But not, it didn't get anything um, else? No. I mean, huh. it got most played on TBS for the <laughs> 90s. Hey. <laughs> um, no, my, so for some reason, the whole movie felt inevitable to me in a lot of ways when I was watching it this time around. So I don't think I enjoyed it as much as if I would have if I went in kind of cold. Like, I kind of knew it was going to happen. Like, um, I don't think I ever felt the tension that I know that the movie is successful at creating. It's just because I couldn't get outside of my own head. Um, so I, I didn't love 
the movie experience, but I recognized that it was well made. It was almost like I was watching it like an like a person who doesn't understand emotions was watching something. <laughs> like, like I can reckon, oh. I was like I can recognize that this is a good movie, oh. but like I'm not super enjoying this. Um, uh. And I don't know. I just feel like I feel like this could have been a tight ninety minutes, and it clocks in at about an hour fifty, or hour forty five. So it felt a little long to me. Yeah. Um, I you could have probably cut I, some stuff out, but I, I, I mean I don't know. I think a lot of the uh, the stuff that contributes that, to something. The, I guess the thing, again, the, the whole movie feels inevitable to me in the sense that they spend a lot of time with this sheriff character, the side character, the sheriff right. who's looking for Paul Sheldon's character. Love that guy. Love yeah, he's, he's awesome. He's great. I could have used less screen time of him. He was fine. Yes. Oh. I just, because I'm like, I know you're going to find him. Richard like, Farnsworth. I, uh, the entire Terrific. time, I'm like, I know you're going to find him. Like, I don't need to have you hemming and hawing here. Yeah, Let's but get there. but Elk, so he hemmed and hawed, but he hemmed and hawed in very entertaining ways. Right, exactly. Yeah. He's like I mean, kind of to the, his interaction with the uh, Princess Sternhagen and his wife. I mean, it, there's that spice. There's that spice again. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's. I I, I don't know. It, my my criticisms of this, of this movie are are largely superficial because I can recognize that it's pretty well made, um, and it's interesting that it comes from Rob Reiner, who's a real chameleon of a director at times. Um, he's directed. Uh, you know, crowd-pleasing family movies. He's directed uh, darker materials such as this. So I think it's interesting that he was the director that was tapped in to make this film. And we talked about when Harry met Sally on this podcast. Right. And there couldn't be more diametrically opposed. Right. Um, in terms of style. But it, I, I, I like directors that can do that. I love directors that are chameleons. I like that ones that uh, can bounce around. Uh, so I don't have huge uh, issues with the movie. I just for some reason it didn't engage me as much as I was hoping it would uh, things I did love about it is I think James Kahn is the king I mean Kathy Bates is great at playing a psychopath but I think that um, in a lot of ways James Kahn's job is a lot harder in this movie I agree um, yep. because I think it's easy to play crazy and big um, like being able to yell cock a car as loud as Kathy Bates does I mean, that's fun. I, even I could do that. But James Conn has to do this thing where he has to, like, pretend that he's not totally freaked out by the psychopath in the room, but he's <laughs> yeah, totally yeah. freaked out by the psychopath in the room. Yeah. He's got the best, like... He's the straight man of the movie. He's got right, the best... He's a hard role. Right? Yeah, he's got right. the best get a load of this fucking guy face like I've ever seen yeah. in my entire yeah. life. He's, like, doing the... Uh, <laughs> He's doing like the Joe Biden in the 2012 presidential <laughs> debates. Like, can you load a lot of this, you know? Well, uh, so James Pond, James Conn is the MVP of the movie, and I don't think he's recognized nearly as much because Kathy Bates is the one everyone talks about. Right. Yeah, it's um, easy to overshadow. Well, it's just, his it, performance is, is subtle, much more subtle than hers, so it's easy to be outshone by... Um, the louder performances always get, you know, say like silent, uh, Anthony Hopkins in The Silence of the Lambs. Sure, yeah. Or, uh, you know, any number of other movies, I'm sure. Um, misery also <laughs> kind of fits into this canon. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you want you want another example? Let's say Dustin no. Hoffman and Rain Man. If we're, you know, oh, I, I was over. just gonna say like it's any like we or we, Dustin Hoffman and Hook. No, we as actors, sorry, we as audiences tend to praise the people with the funny hats. And what I say is that <laughs> I, I mean, we all talk about how great Johnny Depp is as oh, Captain right. Jack Sparrow, but right. he just has to play the biggest, wildest character possible. And it's it, it, sometimes it's more impressive when a character doesn't choose scenery. Is I guess right. my larger point. No, I, yeah, I totally. And it's but, funny, actually. James Conn is channeling the exact same spirit as in Elf, too, by the way. Like, uh, when, she, when she says certain things and he's like, okay, hey, why don't we do this? I mean, it's the same exact voice he's using when he talks to Will Ferrell. Not in well, a bad I, way. It's just that I, I think, think he's, he, he masters that. Well, James Conn is the master of like the uh, trying to deal with crazy people as a straight <laughs> man. Like, that, that's what he's, he's great at. Um, the other thing, Misery kind of exists in this sub-genre of movies. Um, I call them 
psychopath movies um, where it's a situation, a relationship starts normal, but then quickly devolves into the other person being completely insane and over the top. And then you are trying to, you're like, you're siding with the normal character while the crazy person goes more and more out of control. And I, I would say that Misery is less a horror movie and more basically um, the same movie as The Cable Guy. Uh, uh, which came out uh, much later. Um, or... Um, uh, I would even say that it's very similar to Fatal Attraction sure. or um, I'm trying to think of other psychopath movies, um, Single White Female. Right. Um, so I, I think that it, it's kind of, I think those movies never super appealed to me in watching. So it, I guess it makes sense to me that Misery doesn't like totally, you know, appeal to me uh, as a viewer. And I think that could just be a sensibility thing. Um, yeah, and it could be like I, comes... I like character stuff, and I think this movie's got chock full of character stuff. Um, I think yeah. she's an interesting, complex character because someone you would think that is so um, prudish and proper that it's really just it's like her, maybe her coping mechanism for her insanity, or maybe her insanity is a result of a lot of repression or something like that. So I feel like for me, there's a lot for me to kind of chew on and think about um, because it's so character centric. So here's the thing about Kathy Bates, and we're praising James Kong, which I think he's deser- deserving of praise. But <clears throat> I think the reason her performance uh, works as well as it does is the transitions that she's able to pull off between seeming normal and crazy. Uh-huh. And she's able to do that within, you know, within a single shot. You know, she's able to do it, um, you know, where she's telling a story and she's she seems normal, but there's just there's just a tiny hint that there's something wrong, just a single word, um, you know, or a single, you know, just like some, something that she's doing that doesn't seem quite right, you know? Yeah. That, that's uh, something the, I, I, I like. I think the, if I had to critique any part of the performances, I think when she starts yelling for me, I don't know, something about that doesn't really ring true or something. Maybe just because I think she's so prim and proper and like her speech is so stilted that when she goes into these, these loud rants, it, it doesn't feel like that's, and I get it, like her character maybe is because she's always keeping it in, keeping it in, then it erupts, right? But when she erupted, she was a lot less scary to me than when she was actually being sweet and creepy and weird. And like, that is more real to me than when when she starts yelling, I'm like, okay, well now we're, got to the, we're at the scary well, part, you know? It's what like, her character reminded me of is basically a child, you know? The way she's able to transition from, you know, sweet and kind to suddenly just basically essentially throwing a tantrum it, it reminds me <laughs> of what it's like to have a daughter i mean just for instance before we before i came oh, here to record the podcast no um, no julia julia did not hit me with a sledgehammer yeah, i was anymore. gonna say she hobbled no you. no, no, she, no <laughs> my legs are fine um i told her i said i'm, I'm, leaving, the- I'm leaving to go record the podcast with ivan and mike and she said well if you leave then i will scream and cry <laughs> I said, uh, it's, I, I'm trying to figure out how to to deal with it. So I, you know, in a way, I felt like James Caan stuck in a bit. Like, well, what do I say? It's like, I, and you were like, well, I'm not going to be here, so I don't care. <laughs> if you, you know, and then eventually, at some point, she did start screaming about it. No, I want you know, like you, the same that way excellent. that uh, Annie Wilkes does. Uh, you know, only as a child. So anyway, you know, Annie Wilkes reminds me a little of of uh, a person who never mature past a certain point and you know obviously with uh a splash of actual psychopathy i guess was the word you know she actually killed people she actually killed babies she actually killed uh people in in nursing homes and did you guys like uh, that i I feel like it's 
They reveal just enough, I think, of her background. Yeah, you know. I, I, find, I was more into, it felt for me, and again, I'm nitpicking here, but it felt for me that it was just kind of like, oh, okay, she's an, uh, an, an evil villain versus maybe she's well, just so, a lonely person. So what that you're is, talking about is he comes across this scrapbook that depicts headlines of her murdering children, right? Right. It um, all people of all kinds, yeah, right? Not just, not just children. The, the thing that bothers me the most about that is less that, I mean, you could chalk it up to that she's a crazy person and she kills people. That's what she does. Um, and uh, from what I read in the actual novelization for Annie Wilkes, there are two peop- kind of people in, in, in the world. There are dirty birdies and there mm-hmm. are poor deers. Right. And in the sense that babies need to be put out of their miseries, they're kind of like, they're so sweet mm. that they don't belong in this world. It's kind of like the Annie Wilkes. No, psychological- see, I, that doesn't come through to me. As, uh, that character to me is somebody who's so puritanical. I think um, she's such a puritanical character, right, that why would she have anything against children? I feel like it's more of like what, and I started thinking about what, what drives her as a character. What almost seems like something happened to her, either somebody that she trusted very much or somebody, whatever. The point is that she places a very heavy emphasis on what is proper and what is right and what is um, what God wants of her. It's hard for me to to see that she would justify killing children because I feel like they epitomize what she wants to be I feel like she wants to be a child you know when there's when she gets all excited she like runs out of the room like like Dave was saying a little girl right so it doesn't ring true that she would kill children and honestly to be I, I I'd even be okay with it if this was her first murderer if she doesn't really even kill people she just like I, I, I don't know the, the mass murderer serial killer thing I don't think was necessary because we already know she's bad news and she's terrifying and then you open the book and it felt a little cheap, like, oh, look, she's always been murdering people. And, and what well, I guess my she... issue is why would she keep a scrapbook of this? Because I think by doing that, it, do they ever explain that? No, but it, no, it's no, just it's something it, that it's, she's... A, it's a movie thing. I'm thinking of John Doe in Seven, you know, he keeps a uh, diary. Of... I just I feel like um, like I feel like she would know that it's wrong that she's doing this. So she'd be ashamed of it. So yeah, why I feel is like she, she's like, a person she... who lies to herself a lot. So I think having the evidence, I, this is something she presses away. And would not want to to, to experience because I think she's denying that it ever actually happened or that she was wrong, you know that kind of stuff. And I think she's taking pride in having overcome those situations, you know, being I, accused you know, honestly, of them. And- I would be okay with. I was okay with it until it it was a, a rash of murders. I was okay if if she just killed her husband. That to me would have been perfect because it seems like you know that person would have gotten into her life. She would have had reason to want to kill him. Um, because of maybe once she actually has to interact with another human being, she gets ugly and starts freaking out. But like the kids thing didn't really. And the other thing is, why is she not in jail? If she was kind of put on trial, for, they just, I guess they just never proved it. I guess there wasn't enough evidence <laughs> for whatever it, reason. It, it there seems, would be no movie. <laughs> right. I, I don't know. It, it was never. No story. Well, I guess, I mean, I guess my larger thing is we like to try to understand. We like to understand motivations. That's the thing we like. We want to know why someone's doing something. And I think that by making it, I don't know, I, just, I agree with Mike in a way that it just either it was unnecessary or just the fact that it's so uh, visible and it's almost like begging for someone to find makes the movie feel a little, um, I don't know, it, it's very, it seems like a, a writing convention, less so than something that works for the movie. But I, it's a minor. It, it feels like I, mean, I feel like a worse. It feels like, I feel like, like a worse movie would have gone like would have gone much further. You know, might have like gone to one of the hospitals and and talked to her. And said, oh, this Andy Wilkes person. I hope she's not out there. You know, you know they could have. You know, let's say the way Halloween does with Michael Myers, where you have the uh, psychiatrist chasing after him and he's 
giving you all the sex. I mean, Halloween is a great movie, but I'm just saying in that situation, you have Donald Pleasance giving all this exposition as to why Michael Myers is the face of pure evil, et cetera, et cetera. You don't really get into that misery. You just see the scrapbook and that's it. Well, know? it's also a function of the limitations of what this film does. And one thing I do respect it for is structurally, as Mike said, it's essentially a bottle episode. The whole movie basically takes place inside the house, Annie mm-hmm. Wilkes' house. It does occasionally veer off when it follows. Was, it, was the, there such thing as a bottle episode in <laughs> this play? I, I think that just <laughs> what I, I'm trying to say, it's like this idea of self-contained you, yeah, movies. Right. Um, which I, I always admire movies that can do that because I think it's incredibly tricky. So whenever I see a movie that is going to take place in one room, I'm always like, well, how are they going to do this for 90 minutes? Remember we watched like, that movie uh, with Ryan Reynolds and he's in a box for two hours? Yeah, oh, yeah, buried. buried. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. But like, I, I kind of like the challenge of that and I like seeing what writers do with it. I think Cube is a movie that does that really well. Reservoir uh, Dogs. Um but that, one. but that goes into flashbacks, and that's true. That really kind of breaks M- out of that. Misery does have a. That's true. That's true. I feel like misery is pretty contained, except for the fact that they're following the sheriff around. Right. So, um, I do like movies that kind of really keep things contained, and uh, um, and I kind of respect the um, the challenge that that takes right. from a writing standpoint. Um, yeah, but all in all, I, it's this is a movie that it, it's a hard movie to critique because. It, it's just solidly made. There's nothing like wrong with how its construction. It, I feel it, like they basically made as good a movie as you can make out of this material. I mean, I don't feel have like... Have you read the source material? I, I did. I actually I, I was a big Stephen King fan in, in uh, the late 80s, so I used to read not, I, over and over again, actually. I read Stephen King novels. And this was one of the ones... This was one of my favorite ones before it came out, so I had really high hopes... Uh, when it did come out, I mean, do you recall 13, any major? Do you recall any major differences between novel and movie? Mm. Uh, yeah, well, I do. I mean, the, the novel was was more, more bleak. I would say there, you know, less humor, uh, and also, the, you know, the most famous scene in the book and the movie, obviously, is the hobbling scene, which in the movie uh, is a sledgehammer to the foot. But you know, which I remember in the in the book and having read about this. Uh, Refreshing my memory is uh, isn't the book. She it, chops off. It's in, she chops off his foot and then blow torches it. <laughs> you know, oh, it's much. That's it's, it's a little more extreme. But at the same time, I mean, it's you could argue that uh, the movie's version is is uh, more uh, effective. I mean, every time I watch it, I always it's like I can always feel it. You know, in my in my leg, you you, you always kind of bring your. Le- I always bring my leg up and oh god, that that looks terrible. I mean, it's very effective. Yeah, well, I, I think that this brings into a larger discussion about the idea of body horror mm-hmm. and yeah. what movies do it effectively and which ones don't. And I think that the easy thing to say is, you know, the movies that are always the most effective are the ones that don't show you that much. Right. Because the the hobbling sequence is impressive because you do see uh, a you do see a foot essentially. Yeah. Break, break off, break. break break off, but you only see one. You don't never see the other, mm-hmm. and it's it is a very very quick shot. It's not. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't fetishize it. Um, like it's not like a Saw movie that really like See, enjoys the gruesomeness yeah. of it. That's where so. I, I I tend to get I get angry when movies tend to fetishize it. Where it, it almost like is like look at this, look at how, and I think it becomes less because it's very hard to do that in a way that's convincing. Um, and just from a just a philosophical standpoint, I just hate it. I, I don't like I don't like the spirit of it. Right, but I think this is again more effective because you're not seeing it. You're you're feeling it. You're seeing his reaction and how he basically passes out from the pain. I think that's more effective than actually seeing something because it's less abstract, right? It's more real. You're seeing what it might feel like. You're seeing how you might react to it. I mean, you know, and what happens makes perfect sense within the context of the story. I mean, at this point, he's starting to recover. 
and eventually he's going to have the use of his legs back. And so you know, it's it's the kind of, it's probably something she would have done regardless of yeah, him escaping from the room. What's interesting so, is I, I didn't realize, and again, because I, I hadn't seen it, I knew that the there was hobbling. I knew that she's responsible for breaking his legs. I wasn't sure if it had already happened. I wasn't sure if he actually had legs that bad from the crash, or maybe when she brought him in, she realized who she he was and then no, busted up his legs. I think we're meant legs. to assume that happens in the crash, right? Right, exactly. He's, he's, exactly. But yeah. I thought at yeah. first, especially when you see them, they look that horrific. I'm like, man, I don't know if that actually happened in a crash or if that's something that she had done. Like when he was asleep, she was just busting up his legs with a sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. But it turns out, no, that... He that, probably that, would wake up if... <laughs> I don't know if she drugged him up enough. I don't know. Maybe he wouldn't. I, I don't know. That was a thought I had because I knew the scene had happened and his legs were already that bad. I'm like, well, why would she need to do it again if his legs look like that? And then as, as he's recovering, you're starting to see when she has that one night and then you're seeing the pieces starting to fall into place. So, yeah. Um, the um, one thing I do want to talk about as well about this movie is kind of what it was. So we, we, we've talked about that it's a effective thriller, right? Mm-hmm. But is it deeper than that? Like, it, what, is there more meaning yeah. to this movie? Oh, yeah, what, what, yeah. It was definitely. It's, so about what, his, it's about his uh, substance abuse problems, right, Stephen King? Well, yeah, I think that's... Well, I didn't know that, so elaborate, please. I, I didn't read much. Maybe I should have. Maybe I should have done my homework. Um, well, that's, I remember, okay, well, I'll, I'll just read it from IMDb right here. It says, right. after refusing to speak about his motivations for writing Misery for two decades, Stephen King finally came out and stated that it is indeed about his battle with substance abuse. Kathy Bates' character as a representation of his dependency on drugs and what it did to his body. And, uh, yeah, Stephen King was a drug addict and an alcoholic for a long time, and he actually writes about, the, about okay, that well, in that... his book called On Writing, where he talks about a substance yep. abuse Wait, so that, 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 gives, that gives motivation for Stephen King as the author. I'm talking about the character uh, of what the movie's trying to say about I, I, I don't get that this movie is about addiction because James Kahn's character isn't no. addicted to anything, right? No. no. So um, I, I guess in the text of the movie, you're looking at the the uh, you're looking at the, that's not on the text. Like, the, right. it's like a, a, okay. Like, so the text of the movie, uh, what it's about is is the struggle of of, uh, of a creative person trying to break out of of um, what they normally do. So you know, this is so James Kahn's character. I don't know if we said it, the misery is the. Uh, female protagonist of a series of romance novels that he that he's been writing for for it sounds like a couple decades, and he's uh, decided to kill her off, which is what uh, prompts Annie Wilkes to go so over the top and and uh, basically is the uh, catalyst to, for the rest of the story for her to want him to bring back uh, misery in another novel and um, and he's decided to write a different type of story right like a like a memoir or something that's maybe fiction but you know, loosely based on his own life. So if, you know, it's, you know, this is obviously an over the top way of exploring what, what, uh, you know, what it feels like to, to try to do something that you're not so comfortable with, you know, and I kind of identify with that just um, as a creative person doing motion graphics and animation, you get, you know, you're stuck doing the same kind of stuff over and over again. And, and uh, you know, it's uh, the idea of challenging yourself to learn new things and break out of the, you know, you know, leave a job or take on new types of work. Uh, it's a little bit frightening. So, you know, if there's any uh, anything deeper to the movie, I mean, I would say that's definitely part of it. But I, For sure. I, um, I think there's also what's interesting is is the I would say maybe the effect of loneliness and how Annie Wilkes clearly is a very very lonely character. And the one thing absolutely. that she I think is um, these books were kind of the only companionship she had. She felt understood by these books that they were something. And I think we all understand that. We all have our movie or our game or our book that we all like, wow, this almost feels like it was written for me. Like it's, I, I totally get it or it gets me, right? 
right? and how fandom fandom this has all this does have a lot to say about fandom I would right say. exactly and, and like what 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 happens when that turns dark and that becomes twisted like how you want to claim that for yourself and how she wants not only just to be able to tell him like why wow, you did great work thank you and, and letting it stop there but wanting to own it in fact wanting to become him you know how her plan is to kind of get him to to write the novels and then she can take it for herself and then claim it for her own um it's just interesting, and it and it speaks a lot to the human psyche, the need for, for companionship, the need for um, validation, I guess, and what people do when they you know they experience something that can touch them, how that can have an effect on them. I think you're right, Mike, and I think that the movie is kind of like this weird parallel, especially today for um, fanboy culture, yeah. um, <laughs> and and how dangerous that is. Like we're in this place now because of the internet and the like fans think they control characters and have rights to them in this really weird sick way and we really don't uh, and uh, and I think that that's really dangerous and I think the movie addresses that obviously she's nuts but uh, I think that the I think the inclination that just because you happen to be a really big fan of like Iron Man doesn't mean you have dick to say about what all the creative people that are actually making those movies you know, like there is no right version of that character, and I, I think that there's like, a lot of people cry foul about stuff like this all the time, and it kind of drives me nuts. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of that kind of spoke to me in the Annie Wilkesness. Like there was um, recently, there was this whole big deal about how fans wanted to make Elsa from Frozen. Uh, it's going to seem like an esoteric reference. This is the second Frozen reference this episode. Jesus. Well, um, the other one wasn't wasn't on when well, we were recording. So, yeah. Oh, oh, we weren't recording that time. Yeah, we were talking about. Frozen. Oh, never mind. Um, yeah, that would happen earlier. I, <laughs> never mind. Um, but uh, there was this big movement that fans wanted to make Elsa, the character in Frozen, uh, wanted Disney to make the character a lesbian um, because they think it would be good for um, uh, equality and to, to show that representation on the screen. And I have nothing against representing diversity on the screen. I think that's really important. But I don't think that Disney should change whatever they wanted to do with a character because a lot of people signed a petition. Like, that, that, that kind of... Feel, yeah. the control that the, the control that we feel like we have over something that we literally have no process in bothers me. Yeah, that and makes I me angry because I think also it kind of comes back to the, you know, the fact of being an artist and writing something. I, I think that the best stories and the best work comes from people who are creating something just because this is what the character would do or have, you know, the, kind of entering into another world, seeing that world and just kind of telling the story versus making a formulaic, well, what's going to sell? What's going to, you know, what's hot right now? Why should we I, make this? And I think anytime you get you know, and ends kind of mixed in with, you know, the means, it gets a little hairy and it gets a little, you know, if you're looking to sell something, I think the work you're making will tend to be a little bit more hollow, feel more empty versus when you are, you know, when you're making something truly um, artistic and creative, it's going to be a lot more real uh, and might be something more unexpected. Um, but you can't force an agenda on something and expect it to be good. Well, to a lesser extent, um, and Dave's going to probably disagree on this, so watch out. <laughs> but I feel like it's it's kind of similar to the situation we are in with The Force Awakens, hmm. which I admit is a, you know it's it's a fine movie, it, it's decent. But I feel like that movie exists because J J J Abrams is like, okay, here you guys, here, here's the, here's the shit you want. Just, right. Just, 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 so J J Abrams hey, you, is James Conn sitting at the typewriter. Yeah, is James Conn sitting at the typewriter with all the Kathy Bates. yes, the fans <laughs> no, are Kathy Bates. But I, but I would say you're yeah, like, I mean, yes we love no. this. You you we can't have Jar Jar. You can't screw up our beloved characters. Like fine. That would make blah, more sense blah, to me blah, if George blah, blah, Lucas blah. had made that movie. That <laughs> no, but I, I would say in the defense of that movie, and I think in, in on topic too, I think that there's 
yes, there's a certain... So maybe I'll take back what I said partially. I think maybe the agenda of like, oh, we want to make a Star Wars movie that everyone's going to love. So let's put in all the things that people are going to love. But there are still characters in them that doesn't feel... Like, I feel like, to me, Rey and Kylo Ren are two very interesting, very organic characters, especially Kylo Ren. I, I think, think Kylo Ren is. I agree with that statement. But I don't know about Rey. I feel like Rey fits... Yeah. Rey is only interesting, and this is going to sound terrible. Rey is only interesting because they had the guts to make her female, which is great. I think it's great that they have a female protagonist. Sure. But there's nothing mm. about her journey that feels unique to me. Um, I, I, yeah, maybe it's because she's female and it feels different to me. I, I, Wait, well, I what, still what about her, her character is unique? We're not, ta- we're not here to talk about the Force away. I'm curious. <laughs> well, I want to know what you think. What, what about her character is unique? Other than the ace bandages on her arms. The ace bandages on her arms. <laughs> um, well, maybe her character isn't so unique, but the uh, performance by Daisy Ridley is, uh, you know, comes. there's a lot of humanity in her performance. Yeah, I would, I, I would agree with that, yeah. You know, that I found very appealing. So, uh, you know, I don't know. The fact that I, I think you can't deny the fact that, there, that it's a, a strong female character is, is unique. I think that's great. In itself. I think that it's great that all the Star Wars movies are trying very hard to have diverse casts. I think that's right. fantastic. Right. Um, I think that's, I think But you're, you're just saying really from a character standpoint, nothing about her is anything really that different gender aside. And I, I would, I think I would partially agree with you, but I think at the same time, I, she felt like a real enough character where it didn't bother me. I wasn't sitting here saying, oh, this is unoriginal. Because unoriginality unorig- can only go so far. You know, we always talk about everything is a remix, right? Like after a while, mm-hmm. every character kind of starts becoming more ar- like an archetype and it's harder to make something quote unquote original but I feel like realness is really important. I think Kylo Ren, in some way, I mean, I he's, he's basically would have ventured down this discussion. This, it's this about fanboyism. <laughs> yeah, what is more fanboy than Star Wars? I would never well, con- uh, connect uh, Force Awakens to Misery until until now. Well, right. you, I just did. I made that yeah, connection. You did, but it, um, uh, it, it's 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 uh, it's J.J. Abrams sitting down at his typewriter typing "fuck fuck fuck." <laughs> <laughs> oh come on! Yeah, no, I, but I think like, Kylo that would be George, George where... Lucas is that character. <laughs> Right. But so this is you're you're speaking more of the fort of uh, the Phantom Menace. I mean, yeah, but rather than you know that. So um, God, I we're going way too far down this rabbit hole. I apologize. <laughs> but okay, I agree. Phantom Menace is a terrible movie. I'm yes. not going to argue that movie is good. It's not good. All mm-hmm. right, but you, there there is something about that movie that I mean, on a macro level, on a mm-hmm. larger level, you got to admire the ambition that he tried to tell a political space drama. Yes. Like it's a, like uh, about the whole movie. The three movies are about politics, and he tried to explain how politics can result in the breaking foundation. Uh, po- bad politics can lead to um, authoritarianism. It's like the rise of Trumpism, right? It's yeah. this idea that to see how a, a society can lend into that. Now, those movies are horrible and boring and bad, <laughs> but there there is a kernel of something interesting there. Sure. Um, so you're saying that that the Phantom Menace is more gutsy the way that Paul Sheldon's novel memoir is more gutsy, you know. Okay, this is this is this is actually all coming full circle. This makes great right. sense because we we're led to believe in misery that right. his first draft is not as good as the draft he he rewrites after his experience, right? right. He had to go through this traumatic experience yeah. oh to boy. make that movie. So Here we, go. we we had to have the Phantom Menace ah. in order to have the Force Awakens. Yes. Basically, Misery yes. is about Star Wars, is what yes. I'm trying to say. All right. <laughs> we did it, guys. We did it. Satisfied. We've stayed on topic. <laughs> we came full circle. Very well done. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, I digress. Um, I, um, I'm not, um, I don't want to shit on Force Awakens too much. I think it's a pretty damn good movie. I just feel like uh, there's something about that where fanboy culture makes me feel a little icky about what, like how we influence things. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. 
Um, I, I'm, I'm hypocrite because I love all the Marvel movies and I want them to make all the characters like I want the characters to be. So. Sure. <laughs> hey, but yeah, I think the difference is you're not demanding they do it a certain way. And if they do it differently, I think you're mature enough to say, well, that was a take on it. Interesting. Or I'm excited to see that if that take differs from what I expected, maybe it may end up being better. Um, it, sure. it is always what I hope, hold out hope for. And, uh, you know, I, I was telling Dave before we started recording that I wasn't super excited for Rogue One. Um, are you excited for that movie, Mike? Uh, I wasn't. And then I watched the most recent trailer, and I'm interested because I feel like it tells a lot more of the lore of the, the universe. So, yes, I am, I'm excited uh, in so far as seeing like, the look I will of say it, this. Um, who, who's the uh, lead actress in for Rogue One? Felicity Jones, right? Yep. Do you think it's weird that Felicity Jones and Daisy Ridley look identical? <laughs> they look similar, they're yeah. They're both they're blonde. Both brunettes. They're both mm-hmm. brunette British women. Maybe that's her mom. Exactly. Ugh, whatever. And I'm out, guys. <laughs> All right. Speaking of looks, Barry Sonnenfeld is the cinematographer oh, of Misery. How do we not talk about this? Yeah. And I, I think he does a, you know, he really had quite a career with the Coen brothers and, and uh, Rob Reiner at this period. You know what's funny about the Misery and the way it looks is it's not shot it's it, it, all the horror happens in a brightly lit room, mm-hmm. which I think is. Yeah, I mean, there, there is a there is a version of this movie by a lesser filmmaking team that puts him trapped in a basement mm-hmm. that has like a really eerie feeling to it. And there's something about the mm. creepy bed and breakfast nature of it yeah. that makes it scarier. Like, well, and I think like it works for her character because she's again she's so outwardly prim and proper and nice and wonderful and homey, and then there's this deep horror that's like locked within and behind closed doors. So I think it actually. It fits with the character so well that you know that that that's one more facet of the character. How she decorates a house. It's like when you go to someone's house and they've got a lot of like little dolls for like they're a doll collector and yeah. you're like this is the creepiest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, so it's it, that's always that's like almost scarier to me than if I walked into a room full of skeletons or something like that. So I can also imagine someone going much further with the music. I mean, the music does have its moments of like you know psycho kind of kind of music, but. Uh, Bernard Bernard Herman influence, but uh, you know I, I also appreciated the splashes of Liberace, you know, and the way the way uh, he uses that in a, a couple montages, I thought was you know funny. You know that, that's the thing is that Rob Reiner is able to inject humor into uh, a lot of these movies. You know, I'm thinking specifically of of uh, the Princess Bride, which is like taking fantasy and injecting a lot of humor into it, or I guess with When Harry Met Sally, you know, it could be a, a, a weepy romance, but injecting a lot of humor into that. No, totally. Uh, and uh, he was just good at finding the funny in different genres. You the know? movies, this movie's got tons of funny parts. We mentioned uh, uh, Worth, um what's his name? The Sheriff. The Sheriff's characters. Uh, he's funny. Um, Buster. <laughs> but just the Annie Wilkes' nomenclature, the way uh-huh. she, the word cock-a-duty is yes. funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, or the way she says oogie, and like she says like things like, it's like that like cutesy language. It makes, like, it made me so angry. Like I hated it so much, and I, that was so effective because it's this, yeah, it's this babyish, infantile, weird, like fake, uh, saccharine, ugh. Yeah, he was a good word to use, infantile, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Because uh, she's a, she's never matured. And, and also, that, like the just, just her physical performance of like the way she spins around in those frumpy clothes, and you know, it's just it's just, ah, just something so not right about, um, you know, the way she like kind of shaking that bottle of urine while she's oh. in a conversation, just <laughs> so inappropriate. Comedy. 
Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, it's... And then even at the end, the big climax of this movie, like the big intense climax, when he shoves the uh, book down her throat and says, eat, to, eat it till you eat choke, you sick, choke. twisted fuck. Oh. Which is it's like... very it's, cathartic it's, moment. It's, it's cathartic, yeah. but it's funny, and it's... Mm-hmm. Uh, the movie does have an interesting balance of tones. Um, it's not all misery, so to yeah. speak, which I think is pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> so uh, any final gut thoughts you guys have on uh, the old misery right now? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to make a bold statement and say this is, uh, I think it's the best adaptation of a Stephen King book. Ooh, more so than The Shining? Uh, yes, we'll find more out. More so than we'll Shawshank Redemption? No spoilers. Well, it's, it's, uh, more so than um, The Body uh, Stand By Me? I mean, The, Sh- the Shining... Uh, that you know, I don't you know. know. The Shining and Stand by Me, and I'm not sure, maybe not Stand by Me. It's been a, I've read all of these books. I've read uh, The Body, which is Stand by Me, and I've read um, the sh- the uh, Rita uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shushing. Well, I've read Convention. that too. That's a, those are novellas. They're part of novellas, uh, Four Seasons right. book. But uh, I don't know. For me, I mean, I, it may, you know, I, it's always a both. It's a silly thing to call something the best. This is my favorite there Stephen King adaptation. Favorite and best. I think that's a good delineation. And uh, I have seen The Shining. Yes. Uh, I would hope so. You're a movie buff. How could you not see uh, The Shining? Um, that's what we're doing next. Time. Mike, what is your uh, what is your any final thoughts you have on Misery? Uh, I think I said it all. I I, uh, I think it's good. <laughs> I'm spent, guys. I think I said everything that has ever been said and ever needs to be said about this movie. So everybody, collectively, worldwide, we can stop talking about it. <laughs> yeah, I think we're done. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. I, I so don't like you it. know. So does this movie hold up? Is it worthy of its acclaim? It was well acclaimed when it came out in 1990. I'd say, yeah, it's a really well-made movie. It's yep. a, it's, it's a, Sorry it's, you didn't enjoy it more. I hope you see it again someday and enjoy it. Uh, I just, know. I hate the things, I hate knowing where things are going to go. And I feel like this movie kind of, you just know where it's headed. Like, but if, you, like if I, you didn't know, if you didn't know where it was headed, what, you know, like. It's what, impossible what, to divorce yeah, myself from expectation. I, it, uh, it's. It can't be done. Uh, in terms of Stephen King adaptations, um, I don't know what my favorite one is. I think. Stephen King, I think, is America's most prolific and well-known writer. I would say that more than yes. any, and we're talking about big boys like of the past half century. For I sure. think even more so. I think I think he outweighs. I think in relevance now, and I think it's probably weird to say. I think he's more important than Mark Twain, F. Mm. Scott Fitzgerald. I think I think uh, Stephen King defines America. It's hard literature. to judge when someone's still alive. You know, like you think, think of how think of the the canon of work that Stephen King has produced. Oh, sure. Yeah. The dude has written more books than anybody. It's right. crazy. Um, how much he's had an influence on pop culture and and not all of them are hits but Absolutely. damn does this guy have like I can barely write a screenplay every year this guy's like writing like five books a year it's crazy right. so yeah. right. um, it is pretty amazing um, but I, I think Stand By Me might be my favorite Stephen King adaptation another Rob Reiner movie um, another Rob Reiner movie um, because I think Rob Reiner w- worked really well with um Sweet material. I mm-hmm. think he's he's very good at material, uh, um, and he infuses it with a lot of non cheesiness, which mm-hmm. I think makes it work. Um, <laughs> but I'm, for a long I'm also a big years. fan of the Shawshank Redemption. I know that's sacrilegious to say nowadays, but I, I still like Is that it? movie. People like to hate on the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, I haven't seen those people. Um, get on the internet, man. Uh. <laughs> it's a pop. It's a punching bag movie. It's well, a, you know, anytime anything's praised or rediscovered and praised i mean eventually it's going to face backlash yeah exactly it's it's this idea that if anything becomes popular we enjoy watching it fall so anywho um so that is our episode on misery um our next episode our stephen king marathon is going to continue mike has chosen um in time for halloween we are going to be watching um the shining mm-hmm. another uh stephen king adaptation this one directed by the uh, uh auteur 
Stanley, Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick. Uh, so mm. we will watch that. <laughs> <laughs> Is that changing your mind? No, no, I'm, I'm very intrigued. Um, I think yeah. he's interesting, and I want to see what he has done. I've seen clips, again, yeah. clips of this movie, but a lot of stuff I haven't seen, so I'm looking right. forward to it. Right. Uh, so there you go. If you want to find us on the web, you can do so at reviewedpodcast.com, at facebook.com slash reviewedpodcast, and you can email us at contact at reviewedpodcast.com. I also would uh, like to say that if you enjoy listening to this episode, give us a review. And even if you didn't enjoy listening to it, give us a review anyway. I don't really Joe care. Tyler. On iTunes. Joe Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> well, he doesn't like you, Mike. He likes me, though. No, so I know. I know. <laughs> uh, but we uh, appreciate that. Um, until uh, next time, um, uh, I guess listen to this cock duty podcast. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, who's going to go and insert all the ends into the podcast? But take them out. We got to take out all the ends. Oh yeah, all right. Take all the ends out. That's on yeah. Ivan. That's what she said. Oh boy. All right. I'll see you guys in two weeks. Good work. <laughs> <laughs>